on each teacher and give us all ears to hear. Father, we desire to hear from you, learn, and take something home that can change our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, younger folks, if you would like to head out one of those back doors, follow your teacher to your classroom. And then you older folks, we are going to open up to Daniel chapter 11, please. Daniel 11. And we're going to, this is going to be a, a slightly different, slightly different uh, type of lesson this morning. We're going to put some slides on for you now. No, did he? Uh, where'd Rainier go? There he's coming now. All right, we're going to put some slides up in just a second. Daniel 11. And uh, today, I usually, I, I try not to get my eyes stuck on my notes too much. I try to keep eye contact with you folks. I just think that's good public speaking. But today, as we cover Daniel chapter 11, we're going to, by the grace of God, make it uh, maybe a third of the way through. There's, there's a lot of historical stuff to deal with here. And a lot of notes, things that I'm going to be reading from, from my notes, things that I have up on, on these slides uh, so forgive me if I do have my head down, I'm doing a little bit more reading than I would explaining, and perhaps you want to have your pen ready today to, to make a few notes in the margin of your Bible, or perhaps you have a notebook, uh, because guys, when you read in the New Testament about Daniel, Jesus said that when you read the prophet Daniel, he said, whoso readeth, let him understand. There's something, uh, now nah, there's something special about each of the prophets, but Daniel gets a decent amount of attention. When you get to the book of Revelation, if you've read the book of Revelation and you've read the book of Daniel, you know that those two books overlap a lot. And Daniel is told to seal up these things until the time of the end. And then in the book of Revelation, it says, don't seal it up, open it up. And it's almost as if the book of Revelation is the best commentary ever written on the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 11 specifically. For me, this is just my opinion. You don't have to agree with this. Pound for pound, this is the best chapter on prophecy in the entire Bible. It is incredibly impressive, but you do have to work your way through the history of it, all right? We don't have time to go through every single detail that might be appropriate, but guys, I want you to be strengthened today in your faith. When Jesus says, search the scriptures, I want you to know that you can have confidence in what you're searching Jesus said to the Sadducees, ye do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. I want you to know that when you open your Bible, you're opening a miraculous book that has the breath of God and the hand of God on it. And this is one of those times that it is so abundantly clear that God has to be behind the writing of this book, especially this chapter. You'll see that come to the fore. Now, a few things we want to say about Daniel 11. We're going line upon line through it. First of all, I want to introduce you to this heretic, this infidel. He was a philosopher in the third century AD. His name is Porphyry, and an atheist guy, hated God, hated the idea of God, and spent a lot of time going against Christians. I don't know if you can see my red dot very much. You see it moving about there. He wrote a, a book called Against the Christians. We don't have all of the words to that anymore, but Jerome, an early church father from the 400s, he writes certain things and, and copies out of Porphyry's book, so that's how we have some of the writings of Porphyry to this day. Porphyry said this. He alleged that Daniel, in quotes, I'm going to explain that now, he alleged that Daniel did not foretell the future so much as he related the past. 
And lastly, whatever he spoke of up till the time of Antiochus, he's speaking about Antiochus IV, we'll learn about that next time, contained authentic history. You see that here? Lastly, whatsoever he spake of up till the time of Antiochus contained authentic history. Whereas anything he may have conjectured beyond that point was false, inasmuch as he would not have foreknown the future. So Porphyry read Daniel 11, and he said, here's how it actually happened. Daniel 11 gives you detailed history, line upon line, as if you're reading a newspaper. He said, whoever wrote this had, had been reading the newspapers and was standing somewhere in like 164 B.C., after all the events of this chapter had taken place. So Daniel 11 is nothing more than history. It's not prophetical. It is just historical. And Porphyry admits that whatsoever is spoken up till the time of Antiochus contained authentic history. Porphyry, the enemy of Christianity, said everything in this chapter is authentic history. He said it, it happened just like Daniel 11 says. Now the reason he could not accept that the book of Daniel and Daniel 11 was actually prophetic was simply his last statement here. Inasmuch as he would not have foreknown the future, Porphyry denied the idea that anybody could know the future because he didn't believe in God. So he said, nobody can tell the future in this breathtaking of a, of a way. Well, while trying to go against the Christians, he just validated how authentic it all is. So now all we need to determine, did Daniel, and he, he said, let's go back here. He said this Daniel, it wasn't actually Daniel, just some guy that wrote in 164 and then put the name Daniel on it. Daniel lived and wrote it about 533 B.C. So he says this was written in 164, 163 B.C., so several hundred years in between there. Well, if you look at the linguistic and the word choices, they, people are very satisfied now that the book of Daniel was not written in the 100s. It was, in fact, written in the 500s B.C. Archaeology has proved that there was a man named Daniel in Babylon at this time. So all of the other historical points line up. Furthermore, why would somebody in the 100s write something like Daniel 11 and then try to deceive us and say, no, no, this isn't history, this is actually prophecy. Why, why would they put the name Daniel on it if Daniel wasn't already considered a prophet? The name Daniel must have carried some weight with it. So Porphyry, in trying to undo it, has, has only proven that the name Daniel carried some authentic weight, and when you read Daniel 11, you are reading details that are true to the history books. So is, there's archaeological, there's historical, there's linguistic reasons. There are other, and if you really want to know whether or not we should accept Daniel as a prophet, I, I hope you, go right back to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you read in the prophet Daniel. He didn't say the historian Daniel. He said Daniel is a prophet. So I'm going to take it as prophetic. So what we're going to do is move fairly quickly through the verses and, and show you how even though this was written in about 533, he knows things that are going to happen two and three hundred years ahead of him. Almost four hundred years in some cases. All right, so here we go. Verse number one. Verse number one. It says, also I, in the, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. 
This actually goes back to what we've been reading about Daniel having an interaction with some mighty messenger, some angel. And this angel is saying, when Darius the Mede took over from the Babylonians, I was there to strengthen and confirm him. And we've already talked about how the angelic realm, the spiritual realm, does have some oversight about what's happening politically and spiritually. This, we, we know that there's some interaction. We read about this in Daniel 10. How many of you remember in Genesis 18 and 19, remember the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah? Two angels were sent. Remember that? There's some angelic involvement when these cities are overthrown. In 2 Kings 19, Hezekiah is being attacked by the Assyrians, and God says, don't worry about it. I'm going to handle this. The next, oh, that night, it, the Bible says an angel went out and slew 185,000 uh, in one evening, and, and the, the attack of the Assyrians was repelled in that way. So there's, there's plenty of stuff in the Bible to tell us how an angel can stand to confirm a certain kingdom. Sorry, I keep jumping a little ahead. Let's get verse 2. He says, And now will I show thee the truth. This goes back to verse, chapter 10, verse 21, about the scripture of truth. Now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. So after Darius the Mede came in, a man named Cyrus the Persian came in after him. Daniel 8 tells us that he was the higher of the two horns. You might remember that, a ram with two horns. And, and so Cyrus was... Cyrus the Persian was in power at this time. Verse 3 says, they're going to stand up yet three kings in Persia. And the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. All right, so let's take a look at the, at the wall here. It says, Cambysius, right? After Cyrus, there was that man from 530 to 522. Pseudo-Smerdus was the next guy. He reigned for only about seven months. And then Darius the first Hystapsis, Hystapsis. I'll let you have fun pronouncing it along with me. You're welcome to laugh anytime I try because I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. Hystapsis, 522 to 486. Those were the other three Persians that rose up. But then the fourth one that rises up, the Bible says would be far richer than they all. Uh, and, and that's exactly what happened. A man named Xerxes in the Bible, we know him as Ahasuerus. It's just two different language origins that give us the two different names. Ahasuerus reigned from 486 to 465. This is the man you read about in the book of Esther. And his great riches that were predicted in 533, this man, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, wasn't even alive yet. But when he took over, he did have great riches. And in Esther chapter 1, it says he made such a massive, lavish feast that the feet, you talk about Comons Brai, it lasted six months. Six months. And you can read in Esther 1 how beautiful the palace was and how the, they had marble of different colors and hangings of different colors. Just a gorgeous uh, palace that he had built. And then in about 480, in the year 480, this Ahasuerus put together all of his riches, amassed a sizable army, and tried to attack Greece, Grecia. He tried, but he failed. So, verse 2, it says he'll stir up all against the realm of Grecia. He tried to overtake it, but he couldn't. Greece was still an up-and-coming kingdom. That brings us to verse number 3. In verse 3, and a mighty king shall stand up. Now, it took several years, but he did. A mighty king shall stand up, and that, it says that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. This, this refers to Alexander the Great, and he took over in 336 B.C., and he only reigned, you can see, for uh, 13 years, 323. Uh, he was one of the youngest rulers ever to conquer, 
anything of, of any importance, but his dominion. He went from Greece all the way to India, all the way down into Africa, into Spain a little bit. This, uh, Alexander, had, he had a lot going on, and he did according to his will. No one could stand against him. Uh, it is rumored that somebody poisoned him, although those appear to be just rumors. Most people agree that he died because of malaria at a very young age, perhaps, perhaps typhoid, some sort of disease like that. He died at the age of 33. In verse number four, we read this. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken. Alexander was at the height of his kingdom when he died, when he fell sick and died. When he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. Right, historically, let me turn your attention to the wall again. His kingdom was not divided to his posterity, to his family. He had two infant boys at this time by two different women. And of course, he couldn't pass the kingdom on to them. They had no ability of ruling. He did, however, have generals in various places that he had conquered that were loyal to him. And these are the four generals. Ptolemy, this was a man's name in Egypt. Seleucus in Syria. Cassander in Macedonia, and Antagonus in Asia. Uh, now, there was some squabbling in and amongst these men, right? So when you read the history books, there's a lot of back and forth. But these are the four men that emerge as the generals that took over, and the kingdom was divided in four different directions. Guys, this was written 200 years before that happened. How would any of you like to say what's going to happen in South Africa in the next 200 years? How many of you would be bold enough to say our land will be divided between four different, not presidents, but generals? I mean, why would we think like that? What a weird guess, but that is exactly how it came to pass. Uh, this is a quick map just to give you an idea. Uh, do you mind hitting the lights for this just so that they can see this a little bit better? I hope that helps. So you can see there's four different kingdoms here. You have the kingdom of Greece or Macedonia, as some call it over here. And then the antagonist. I keep wanting to say antagonist. Let's say the antagonoid kingdom over here. And then the two big ones, the Ptolemaic kingdom. This is the Egyptian kingdom down here in the south. And then the Seleucid kingdom. This is Antioch of Syria. Seleucia, you can see, was a city over here. But all of this territory was under one general's rule. Now, for the next couple hundred years, what happens is control over these lands. That's what people are fighting over. Two characters are going to emerge. The kings over here of Greece and Macedon, Thrace, those area, they kind of fall by the wayside. They're not important because Daniel 11, it, it has to do with what is affecting the children of Israel. And these kingdoms over here really aren't affecting Israel that much. They're, they're out of the way. But Israel's right here, guys. So you can see what's happening. The king of the north, that's your Seleucid kingdom. And the king of the south, that's your Ptolemaic kingdom. They are going back and forth, back and forth, hammer to anvil, hammer to anvil. And Israel's getting pounded in between there constantly. All right, let's go to... This slide here, verse number five. And the king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes, uh, forgive me, let me read this in a certain way to hopefully help, help you understand it. The king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes. 
and he shall be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. There's a lot of pronouns in this, so I'm going to try to work slowly through this. Let's read the slide, and then I'm going to give you some explanation. Ptolemy Soter. Anytime you see Ptolemy, Egypt, right? Just think south, king of the south, Egypt. Ptolemy Soter. Soter means savior. Ptolemy Soter, who was strong, had power over Seleucus Nicator. Seleucus Nicator, that's the king of the north, all right? He had power over Seleucus Nicator for a while. Eventually, Nicator's dominion became greater than that of Soter. So what happened? You have the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the south had more power. So he tells Nicator, I'll help you out. Nicator had lost several provinces of his kingdom. So Ptolemy Soter said, I'll take you under my wing. Thus, in verse 5, the king of the south shall be strong and one of his princes. Nicator is considered a prince of the southern kingdom for a little while because he's taken under the wing of Soter. And he shall be strong above him. Nicator eventually became stronger than Soter because Soter helped Nicator to recover so many provinces that, that Nicator's kingdom, his dominion grew much greater than the king of the south, which leads us to the end of the verse. And have dominion, his dominion shall be a great dominion. So this is exactly how it did happen. That prince eventually gets elevated and has more power than the one who helped him. In verse number six, let's read it in the Bible. And in the end of years, they shall join themselves together. So the Bible gives us a little bit of a jump forward. I've shown this to you several times in the book of Daniel. Whenever there's a time jump, there'll be something in the text that says to the time of the end or at the end of the years. And it tells you we're skipping ahead a few decades. And that is what happened here. About three decades passes, three, maybe 35 years passes. In the end of years, they shall join themselves together. The king of the north and the king of the south are going to try to make an alliance. For the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of the arm. Neither shall he stand, nor his arm. But she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that beget her, and he that strengthened her in these times. If you're reading this with all these pronouns, it just goes right past you, right? Let's fill in some of the pronouns, and please bear in mind, 250 years before any of this happened, Daniel's writing this down. So, Let's read the slide. Bernice, daughter of Ptolemy Philadelphus, was given in marriage to Antiochus Theos, or Theos, which is the word for God. Antiochus became the name that was, or the title given to the king of the north. There's a long story behind that. So now we have Bernice marrying Antiochus Theos. After Philadelphus died... Theos divorced Bernice and went back to his first wife, Laodice. Laodice went on to poison Theos, have Bernice killed, and any of her supporters were also put to death. Okay, let me walk you through the verse again, and we're going to plug in some of this information, all right? In the end of the years, they shall join themselves together. Yes, they tried to make an alliance, and they did for a while, the two kingdoms, north and south. For the king's daughter of the south, that's Bernice, if you're making notes, that's Bernice, shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. The agreement was, Antiochus, please put away your wife, Laodice, and your two sons. Put them away. Marry me. 
and as long as we're married, then our kingdoms will have peace. That was the agreement. Bernice's dad brokered the agreement. Ptolemy Philadelphus. All right, it says next, but she shall not retain the power of the arm. What happened? Ptolemy Philadelphus died shortly after this deal was arranged. Laodice had been sent away with her sons. And now this marriage goes on for a few years, but then Philadelphus dies. And when he dies, Antiochus Theos says, I don't want to be married to this Bernice person. So he then puts Bernice away and brings back his other wife, his first wife, Laodice. Laodice enters back into the scene and says, I don't think this is going to work. Because my husband already put me away one time, so I don't think he's fit to rule. So Bernice says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wipe out everybody that might even challenge me and my sons to take the throne. So she has Bernice, Laodice now kills Bernice, and she kills her husband, Thales, so that her son, we'll meet him in the next couple of verses, can rise to, rise to power. All right, so let's keep reading in verse 6. But she shall not retain the power of the arm. That means Bernice. She didn't. She was trying to extend the power of Egypt, but it didn't work. She didn't retain it. Neither shall he stand. This will be Theos, the one that went along with this agreement. Nor his arm. All right, so the, the peace treaty he made didn't work out. But she shall be given up. Bernice died. And they that brought her, the Egyptian supporters... All of the generals that they all get put to death. And he that beget her, Philadelphus died. And he that strengthened her in these times. Anybody that was behind Bernice got put away or killed by Laodice. So everything in the verse came to pass exactly spot on like it should have 250 years before it happened. Those are fairly precise details. And it, and it works out. Verse 7 Verse 7, let's read it together. We're going to go 7 to 9 here. But out of a branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north and shall deal against them and shall prevail and shall also carry captives into Egypt their gods with their princes, with their precious vessels of silver and of gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return into his own land. All right, so let's work our way through verses 7 to 9. It's all dealing with one big event, actually. Verse, uh, let's just read the, the wall if we can. Ptolemy, you're Geddes. You're a Geddes. I'm going to go with that. Ptolemy, you're a Geddes. Murdered Bernice's brother. Sorry, give me one second. That looks like I made a typo there. No, no, that's a typo. Forgive me. I'm not quite sure how that stayed in the slide. Ptolemy Eurigetus was Bernice's brother. Sorry, that's a pretty big typo. <laughs> that's a pretty big typo. Ptolemy Eurigetus, that's Bernice's brother, marched to Syria to avenge Bernice. So Bernice has now been put away and killed. So Eurigetus stands up, her brother. So verse 7, out of a branch of her roots... Somebody related to her. It's her brother. Ptolemy Eurigetus goes to Syria to avenge Bernice. This he did, spoiling Syria in the process. So not only does he go in and kill a few people, but he takes back a lot of riches. This he did, spoiling Syria in the process. He took 40,000 talents of silver, 
2,500 precious vessels and recovered several Egyptian idols. They say approximately 2,000 idols as well were recovered. Just look at verse number 7 again. Out of a branch of a root shall one stand up in his estate. So Eurogetus stands up in the estate of his fallen father, Philadelphus, which shall come with an army. He did. And shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north. He did. And shall deal against them and shall prevail. He did. Verse 8, he'll carry captives into Egypt, their gods. He did. The king of the north had taken the Egyptian idols as a spoil of war, but the king of the north was able, or the king of the south was able to recover them. With their princes, so he brought back some of the delegation that was taken hostage, and with their precious vessels of silver and gold, you can see it on the wall, he did, and continue more years than the king of the north. Eurogetus outlived the king of the north. So the king of the south did outlive the king of the north by about five years. So Laodice had put her son, a man named Callinicus, on the throne. And sure enough, he died before Eurogetus. Verse 9, so the king of the south shall come into his kingdom, into the Syrian kingdom, the king of the north, and shall return into his own land. He did. He attacked the north, and he made it back safely home. So verses 7 to 9, spot on exactly as the Bible had predicted. All right, verse 10. Let's read in the Bible together. It says, but his sons shall be stirred up. Now, these are the sons of Callinicus, the sons of the king of the north who just got his tail whipped, if we can say it like that. But his sons shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces. Right? This is true. There were two sons of Callinicus. Right? So Laodice, who had Bernice murdered and Theos murdered, you know, Antiochus Theos, she now put her son Callinicus on the throne. Callinicus just... Had it handed to him, he has passed away. And now he has two sons, a man named Coraeus, yes, and then a man named Antiochus the Great. This is Antiochus III. Those two sons stand up. It says they'll assemble a multitude of great forces. They did, and one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. All right, let's read the Ward, uh, the wall together here. The conquered Seleucid king was Callinicus, son of Laodice. His sons, Coranus, Coranus, and Antiochus assembled forces to attack the Egyptians. Only Antiochus, we know him as Antiochus the Great, made the journey overrunning the Egyptians in several of the places they had recently conquered. Right, so Eurogetus had made this massive move, but now Antiochus the Great is going to carry out his version of a rescue mission. Notice in verse 10, it says, the sons, plural, shall assemble a multitude of great forces. They did. And then it says, and one shall certainly come. Do you see that? So multiple sons, but only one comes. You know what happened? Koranus, he helped gather this multitude, but he was such a horrible leader that some of his generals got together and poisoned him before he could move and attack, leaving only one of them to come to the battle. Only Antiochus III or Antiochus the Great was able to come. So that small little detail, spot on. It's exactly how it ended up happening. So Antiochus the Great, he did come, just as it says, and Antiochus was successful, and he brought the land of Syria out from under the Egyptian rule. It had just been taken under that, uh, under Ptolemy's rule. Now notice at the end of verse 10, he shall be stirred up even to his fortress. Antiochus attacked all the way down to a, 
an Egyptian province, an Egyptian place called Raphia, or Raphia, R-A-P-H-I-A. It was a very well-fortified town near the border of Egypt. So this well-fortified town, that's the fortress. 270 years before it happened. Verse number 11. Verse 11. It says in the Bible, And the king of the south shall be moved with choler. Choler is great anger or wrath. Right? The king of the south shall be moved with choler and shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north. And he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. Now, again, a lot of pronouns. So let's read the wall and see if we can work our way through the pronouns. Ptolemy Philopater. By this time, Eurogetus had now died. He's, he's off the scene. His son, Philopater, is now on the throne. Ptolemy Philopater, filled with great wrath, fought back against Antiochus the Great, who set forth a massive army. The multitude of Antiochus's army was overwhelmed by Philopater, or Philopater, however you'd like to say that. So coming back to verse 11, this is exactly what we see. The king of the south shall be moved with collar, come forth, fight with him, even with the king of the north. He did. And he shall set forth a great multitude. Now he, I believe, is Antiochus. He puts out this big army, but the multitude shall be given into his hand, Philopater's hand. All right, so Antiochus thinks he's got it because of the number, but Philopater wins the battle. All right, verse number 12. In verse 12 it says, And when he hath taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up, and he shall cast down many ten thousands, but he shall not be strengthened by it. All right, reading the board again. Ptolemy Philopater overcame... Now, when it says, he shall set forth a great multitude, in verse 11, Antiochus set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into, uh, into his hand, into Philopater's hand. Here's the multitude that he overcame. Ptolemy Philopater overcame 72,000 footmen, 6,000 horsemen, and 102 elephants. Those are like tanks. Now, guys, remember, this isn't a massive piece of land. 102 Elephants and 72,000 people, that's a pretty decent-sized army coming at you. That's what Philopater overcame. All right, so it says, when he hath taken away the multitude, verse 12, Philopater takes that multitude away, his heart shall be lifted up. He says, aha, look at me, look at what the great thing I did. Despite, I'm back to the wall now, despite his great victory, he did nothing to protect his kingdom, thus he quickly lost whatever he had gained. So he had won this massive battle, but he didn't reinforce any of the borders. He didn't put forth any security. So he won the battle, but then started living a very lustful and lavish life and just lived it up, kind of living off of this one victory. So it says at the end of verse 12, he shall not be strengthened by it. He wasn't. We're getting almost 300 years ahead of time. My goodness, man. Verse 13 the Bible says, For the king of the north shall return and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. I like how the word certain and certainly keeps getting put in there. We have great certainty that these words are true. In verse 13, let's, uh, let's get some explanation here. Antiochus the Great came back after 13 years. And defeated Philopater's son, a man named Ptolemy Epiphanes. We'll get into that. Epiphanes is used by both the king of the north and the south, that name. Talk about that more next time. 
But that's what you're reading in verse 13. 13 years later, Antiochus the Great made a comeback. In verse 14, the Bible says, And in those times there shall many stand up against the king of the south. Also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. All right, what happened in verse 14? It says, many, it says, many shall stand up against the king of the south. All right? On the wall, I've written, Philip, king of Macedonia, joined with Antiochus to fight against Ptolemy's interests. So when it says many shall stand up, it wasn't just the king of the north. Antiochus went and found help. So many did stand up to fight against Egypt and to completely overcome them and wipe Egypt out. Take over that portion of the land completely. It says in the middle of the verse here, we're talking about robbers in verse 14, at the end of my paragraph here, I've written, some advantageous Jews took part in the fighting looking to make some easy money. There were some Jewish lowlifes, robbers of the people. They, they looked at this and said, we are tired of all the fighting between the north and the south. This is our chance. We are going to help this northern aggression wipe out the Egyptians and then in the process, we will take over little portions of the land here in Israel again, and we will control it. They tried to do that. They wanted to establish the vision. What's the vision? That Israel will dwell in their land. They tried to establish it, but it didn't work because it wasn't time for that. They were just doing this of their own accord. So exactly as told to Daniel, like I said, almost 300 years ahead of time. Sure enough, that's how it was. All right, verse number 15. So the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount and take the most fenced cities. And the arms of the south shall not withstand, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. Right, so we read on the board here, on the wall, Antiochus defeated Ptolemy's general, Scopus. Now the reason I point this out, the general Scopus was the one being defeated, because Epiphanes was just a young boy at this time approximately somewhere between the age of five and seven years old. He's on the throne. So Scopus is the one doing all the fighting. The king of the north comes and casts up a mount and takes the king, uh, overcomes the, the forces of the south, the arms of the south. Do you see that in verse 15? Take the most fenced cities and the arms of the, of the south. It didn't say the king of the south. It said his arms. That's his army. That's a, that's a strange detail to put in there, but it's sure enough true to history. That's, that's how it was. All right, uh, Scopus then overtook many smaller cities, which Antiochus in turn took from him. So back and forth a bit. Despite sending Egypt's finest to defend their property, the elite southern soldiers were forced to surrender due to famine and retreat in the nude. It was so bad that, that the king of the north now is just making an open embarrassment of them, trying to break their spirits and said, okay, we'll let you live, but you got to go, you leave your clothes save your lives. So at the end of verse 15, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. They were completely put to shame. In verse 16, but he that cometh against him shall do according to his will. None shall stand before him and he shall stand in the glorious land, which by his hand shall be consumed. This is speaking about Antiochus the great. He was conquering for a long time and anybody that tried to against, come against him ended up bowing the knee to his strength. So I've written here, anyone who dared fight against Antiochus ended up subjugated to him. And it's also true, the land of Israel was conquered by Antiochus as he marched through it multiple times to fight against the Ptolemies. 
So just as you read in verse 16, this is true to history. 300 years before anyone saw it happen. It's as if Daniel's reading the newspaper to you. But 300 years ahead of time. Verse 17. Verse 17. Let's just get a couple more verses. Verse 17. Are you guys following me okay? I know this is a lot of history, and I know some of you maybe aren't history buffs, but I'm just trying to help you see that this, this Bible that you have in your lap, this isn't just some fairy tale book. This book, this book is true to history, even the history that hasn't happened yet. And if you can trust these prophecies that have already come to pass, you can sure enough trust the prophecies that are still about to happen. I want you to have that faith in your Bible this morning. Now, verse 17, it says, He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom. That's Antiochus. And upright ones with him. So he brings the best of his kingdom. It says, Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her. But she shall not stand on his side, neither before him. What an odd verse. What an odd verse. Who, who would make this up? Why would you think this? Who would come up with this? How much pizza did he eat before he wrote this? Right? I mean, you got to sleep on pizza and wake up, have some weird dreams to write this kind of stuff. What happened? All right, let's read the wall together. Antiochus focused his attention on taking over Egypt entirely. Egypt had found a friend in Rome by this point, so Antiochus had to change tactics. He sent his daughter, Cleopatra. How many of you remember that name from history? Okay. Sent, there were many Cleopatras, but this was the first time it became a big deal. Antiochus sent his daughter, Cleopatra, to marry Ptolemy Epiphanes. Remember, he's a young boy at this time. He took over when he was like five or seven, so he's still too young to actually be a husband, but it was an arranged marriage. His hope was, this is Antiochus, his hope was that Cleopatra would help him to subtly steal the Egyptian power Cleopatra acted more like a politician than a daughter because she sided with the Egyptian-Roman coalition. Look at the end of the verse. He shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her. Put her in politics. It corrupted her. Antiochus thought, let me put my daughter in, and in time she will act as an undercover spy, telling me the inner workings of the Ptolemaic kingdom, and even kind of whispering in her young uh, the king's ear, her husband's ear saying, come on, let, let, let's join forces with the north. Let's get together and try to get the kingdom that way. Antiochus knew I can't fight against Rome. Rome was up and coming. Rome was mighty and powerful at this time. He didn't want to fight with them. So he's trying to work through his daughter in this arrangement, but it ended up corrupting her. Five years after the marriage happened, Cleopatra was 12 and Antioch, or, um, Epiphany, sorry, Ptolemy Epiphanes was 10 when the marriage took place. This is in 194 B.C. And it took about five years for them to actually consummate and go forward with that marriage. But on paper, it was a marriage. Cleopatra now looks at dad and says, Pa, you, sold, you gave me out. I'm a bargaining chip. I'm no longer on your side. I'm not fighting. I'm not on the side of the Syrians. I'm now on the side of the Egyptians slash Romans. So now this really threw things off for Antiochus in a, in a big way. Um, verse 18, let's just move along here. Verse 18, it says, After this shall he turn his face unto the isles, and he shall take many. But a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. 
This is interesting. So Antiochus says, okay, well, that plan didn't work. Cleopatra's now for the Ptolemies, helping the Romans. So now what can I do? So instead of pressing south, Antiochus says, I will press to the west. I'm going to go take the islands of Greece. And there are many of them, little dotted islands all throughout the Mediterranean Sea. And he did. He, able, he was able to conquer several. But these are now Roman interests. And the Romans said, who do you think you are taking our islands? You can't do that. So there was a Roman prince named Scipio. I like that name. Good old Scipio. <laughs> and he skipped into action here. And Scipio comes in and he... He defeats Antiochus so soundly, he drums this guy hard. He comes out, as we say, smelling like a rose. Scipio takes all the islands back, so much so that he gains the nickname Asiaticus. <laughs> all right, so let's see if we have it on the board here. Yes. After being turned away by the Romans, Antiochus shifted his focus to the Mediterranean Isles. A Roman general, Scipio Asiaticus, soundly defeated Antiochus, thus putting a stop to the reproach that Antiochus had been leveling against Rome. Antiochus thought he could flex his muscle and prove to Rome, I'm still a, a military power to be dealt with. But this Roman general, it says in verse 18, a prince for his own behalf. This Roman general stands up on the behalf of Rome and says, I'm not going to let you put my people to shame. And he defeated him so strongly, it says, without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. So he turns Antiochus' plans upside down, puts it back on his own head, and says, you were trying to prove a point to us, we're going to prove a point to you. And it's going to be loud and clear, and there wasn't one thing that anybody could find that Scipio did wrong in this battle. He executed every plan perfectly in order to defeat Antiochus. So in order to survive this, Antiochus had to agree to several special terms just to stay alive. It was a very shameful treaty in order to keep peace, but this is what he had to agree to. Never again could he step foot in Europe, ever. He had to give up all of his possessions in Asia, all the way to what we now call Turkey. He pretty much had to give all that land back. He had to pay for all the expenses of war, even the Roman expenses. He had to pay all of that. And he had to give 20 hostages as collateral to the Romans just as, as good faith to say, if you renege on any of our agreements, we're going to start killing hostages. One of them was his own son, Antiochus IV, who history now knows as Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes is who we read about for the next 15 verses. So this is where we're going to kind of wrap up our lesson for this morning. Um, let's see here. Yeah, I'm going to just end on this because this will end Antiochus III, and then we can move on to the fourth next time. Verse number 19, then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land. This is Antiochus the Great, and he did. He went back to Syria. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. You want to talk about interesting. Antiochus the Great, with all these burdens now laid upon him, his own son in captivity, and he has to pay all the expenses of war as like a special tax leveled against him. What could he do? He tucks tail and runs. He goes back to his own forts and his own land, but he realizes, I don't have enough money to pay all the expenses of war. So eventually, he goes to a Persian province, 
Let's read it on the board here. After a brief retreat to Syria, Antiochus tried to rob the temple of Jupiter in a Persian province. This Persian province is named Elymais, E-L-Y-M-A-I-S. He, he tried to rob the temple of Jupiter in a Persian province to pay the large tax imposed upon him by Rome. He was recognized, attacked, and killed, never to be buried or seen again. They, the last thing you read about him in history is that somebody recognized him and they took him out. They called Cousin Vinny and said, we, we got a guy. You got to do us a job. Do us a favor. Don't let him find the body, eh? So Antiochus ends up wearing concrete shoes. <laughs> you guys know what concrete shoes are. You know what those are? Okay. Where, where you, dip, you dip their feet in concrete and then let it dry and throw them in the river. <laughs> you ain't coming back out of that. But it says, look at the end of verse 19. He'll stumble and fall and what? Not be found. Not be found. What are we at now? 300 years? More than that, over 300 years ahead of time. That is exactly how Antiochus the Great ended. I'm telling you, this book is a breathtaking book. We don't have to dress it up, add anything to it, take anything, anything from it. Just reading it, and then you can go look at any history book and just see, my goodness, the Bible. Eventually, the history books catch up with the Bible. Isn't that something? All right, let's all stand. Thank you for some extra time this morning. Father, thank you for this amazing book that you've given us, you've preserved for us. Help us never to take it lightly. I pray you bless our fellowship and our service to come. God, please come down.